Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson, and joining me as ever is my co-host and Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. Hello. Each week, we will take a deep dive into the latest episode and talk with some of the stars and creatives behind the scenes. This week, we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 1, The Man Who Would Be Vogue, directed by Ryan Murphy, written by Tom Rob Smith. And later in the hour, we will be joined by Ricky Martin, who plays Johnny Versace's partner, Antonio D'Amico. But before we get to Ricky Martin, Richard, let's dive right into the episode, shall we? Yeah, we're, here, here we go. Here we go. The episode opens with just a really incredible, largely dialogueless sequence um, where we see Versace and Kudanan sort of on a collision course. They showed this sequence over the summer um, at the Television Critics Association Summer Press Tour, uh, this entire um, opening. And I was so taken by it that that's when I decided we had to do this podcast. Oh, wow. Okay. So, 
<laughs> that's the genesis. Um, and, uh, you know, while I was there, they took us on a tour of the set that they had recreated. They meticulously recreated Versace's bathroom and his bedroom and stuff like that. Um, the, those designs were done by production designer Judy Becker, who did like Carol and, and a lot of like Todd Hayden stuff. She's amazing. And then they also filmed some of this at Versace's Real Ocean Drive Home, which is now uh, a hotel in Miami. And so it's just like, it's just an, I think, an incredible, incredible audacious opening to this very stylish Ryan Murphy pulling out all the directorial stops. Um, what did you think of this, this opening sequence? I mean, it certainly uh, is a great introduction to the show's style. And um, we said uh, last week that um, th- it, in a lot of ways, the this show is more of a mood piece, maybe than than OJ mm-hmm. was, which was a little more straightforward. And I think yeah. this is a really um, nice way of setting that tone, uh, and it gives you in in just a short amount of time a real sort of sense of of the, the of the world. You know, like um, it's a little bit it's a little bit ornate in a gaudy way, um, but there's also a sort of passion and an artistry to it. So I don't know. I think I think it's, um, you know, as TV gets more and more cinematic, I think we're going to see more stuff like this. So it's, it's exciting. We haven't talked too much, I think, about the casting um, in, in previous episodes, but, you know, here we see um, Edgar Ramirez as Johnny Versace and Darren Cress as Andrew Cunanan. And Edgar Ramirez looks astonishingly like Johnny Versace. I mean, like you can kind of see it in the genesis of what Ramirez looks like in his everyday, but just the tan and the, and the, you know, whiter hair and stuff like that. It's just sort of incredible. The hair work is amazing. The way that they get the receding hairline just right. Like it's, it's really careful, meticulous work. Yeah. And then, um, but with Darren Chris, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this actually a little, a little bit later, um, in a different episode, maybe. But, uh, to be honest with you, Darren Chris is, I think, a little too attractive to play Andrew Kinnan, and especially at this point in his life when he had, like, gained a lot of weight and was feeling really insecure about his body. And, like, Darren Chris just looks as beautiful as ever. So, um, that's, that's my only complaint about the Darren Chris casting, which is otherwise, I think, really amazing because i mean obviously we we first meet andrew and he's like on a beach and grimy and has this like terrible wound on his leg so he's not like looking tip top right. in this episode but still it, it's it's a little it's a little glam up i think for andrew Kanan and at least at the end of his life here so yeah i mean in 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 the crassest possible terms like someone as good looking as darren chris becomes darren chris they don't probably become a like a low level hustler <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean right. like right yeah exactly um so but but and then you know of course there are these little uh conde nast touches that we should mention which is that um johnny buys the diana princess diana cover of vanity fair in this opening sequence and andrew is reading um the man who would be vogue the life and times of conde nast in 1982 biography by Carolyn Siebholm, uh, which gives the episode its title. Uh, Andrew Cunanan was sort of very famously obsessed with a variety of Condé Nast publications like Vogue and Vanity Fair. So, you know, it doesn't sound crazy to me that he would be reading this book at the end of it all. So, Joanna, this is this is when you were supposed to be like, aha, we have to do this podcast, when you saw and the Condé then, Nast stuff. And then I said, aha, yeah. we have to do this yeah. podcast. <laughs> to, to protect the brand. 
Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of really meticulous detail in this opening. You'll, you'll see this, I think, throughout the series that there's a push and pull, as with OJ, with like really meticulous detailing of like, say, what the Versace house looks like or the pink robe that Versace would wear in the morning, I'm sure, or something like that, versus the other work they have to do of being inside the mind of Andrew Kanan at the end of his life um, when no one knows what was going on. So like, Darren Criss is Andrew Cunanan wading into the ocean and screaming. That's, you know, by force, like an invention. Um, and, and that's sort of the poetic license that this show has to take here and it takes in other places. Um, what, what do you think of moments like that? And, um, is there a danger? I don't know. Danger might be too intense, but is there a danger of people taking this as like, this, this is a documentary of what happened with Versace and Kunanen, you know? I mean, there might be a, a risk there because, um, you know, with OJ, it seemed so kind of verite and, and, you know, like, like accurate. Um, and, but, you know, I, I think that probably people will be watching this in a different way, in, you know, because like I said, it's like a mood piece. It, it just, it's, it's framed differently, you know? And, um, and, and I would say narratively, or as just a viewer, I I enjoy these kind of these the, this poetic license, you know, because it it gives um, shape and more dimension to the story. That because some of these things are pretty sketchy in terms of what we actually know, um, right. and so that allows me to kind of ignore the other part of me that's like, well, but if, if this isn't accurate, how responsible is it to this story that is very fraught, as we'll talk about pretty soon, with a lot of real life things that are in question and still affect people's lives now. And, you know, so I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds about it. Right now, the, the, the half of me that wants to just be entertained is kind of dominant, but we'll see how that goes as the show goes on. You know, we're recording this a little early, so it's just after um, the Versace family has made their second and I think what they claim is their final statement on the show where they, you know, they directly call out um, Vanity Fair contributor Maureen Orth, who wrote Volga Favors, the book that the show is based on. And, and they kind of – they they call her book sort of um, based on gossip and, and not actual journalism. Maureen disagrees. But one major – Point of con- there are two major points of contention for the Versace family that that we'll talk about a little bit in this episode. One is that Versace, whether or not Versace knew Kinnanen, mm-hmm. um, which we'll get into in this episode in, in great detail, and then whether or not Versace was sick with HIV/AIDS, and um, the or whether yeah whether he was HIV positive. And um, this episode lately, lately, lately touches on that. Uh, we'll talk about it more in the future, but we see in this opening scene, Versace taking medication yeah. and prescription medication. And something that Maureen North covers in her book is that he was found with traces of prescription drugs in his bloodstream when, during the autopsy. So like, that is a fact. She doesn't detail which prescription drugs. Right. I mean, in some ways you want to be like, yeah. he was like this Rococo fashion designer living in Miami Beach. Like, doesn't everyone have prescription <laughs> drugs in their system? And at them, you know, like- fair, fair point. Um, but, th- you know, this seems to be like, uh, you know, and something that Ryan Murphy said in response to sort of this, this Versace concern, Versace family concern is that um, if you believe Maureen North's reporting in, in her book um, about Versace's diagnosis ryan murphy's point is like there should be no shame associated with being hiv positive and so that's kind of his attitude around it it's a very um i think compelling conversation to have around 
what responsibility we have to the secrecy that the family wants versus not uh, shaming something that, you know, I think a lot of people believe to be true. Once again, this is something I think we will talk about a little bit further on in the series, but that's just something I wanted to. Yeah. And, 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 you know, either for better or worse, I'm not really sure what, in a way, what I think this is kind of nodding to is the fact that in 1997, we were reaching the tail end of a decade where pretty much any gay narrative, be it a play or a book or a movie, um, it was about HIV and AIDS, you know, like in some way had been touched right. by it. And so I think in a way they're saying, well, you know, like this was a part of not I don't want to say gay identity, but certain certainly the perception of gay life by a lot of people in this country and other countries was that HIV or AIDS was always a part of the story. And, you know, m- maybe it was in this. We don't know. But uh, I think that in a sort of more metatextual way, that's kind of what it's doing. And to um what further muddies the conversation around this is the fact that um, based on some bad information, the media and the authorities immediately jumped on this idea that Andrew Kananen was HIV positive and that his killing spree was motivated by some sort of like revenge to the men who had possibly infected him. And then it turned out in Kunanen's, uh autopsy that he was not HIV positive. Yeah. Whether or not he thought he was, that might be a little bit of question, but he was not HIV positive and he was assumed to be by so many people, I think, perhaps due to exactly what you're talking about in terms of um, the gay narratives that cropped up in that decade. And so he was assumed to be, but wasn't. And the Versace family is saying Johnny wasn't, but maybe he was. So that that's like the weird uh, back and forth of, of this particular medical angle of, of the case. So. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of the few things, you know, uh, that I remember dimly from the, from the case before I, I, you know, dove into doing this podcast and watching the show uh i was like yeah there was something with hiv you know because that i'd like heard that in passing on like a current affair a hard copy or some stupid show i was watching when i was 13 um (laughs) were you you a huge hard copy watcher when you were 13 i just feel like those shows were always on you know i guess i I was i was 14 by then but yeah, yeah you know they were just always on like after school you know so um, and I, but anyway, that, and that's 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 a shame that that that's the one thing or one of the few things I, I glean from it. But it's also pretty telling, like I said, about a lot of the narratives about gay people that were happening at the time. Not everything was about that if it was about gay people, but like a lot of it was. Right. Um. So the then we cut back in time. So then we get the title. You know, Versace says no. Uh, we hear a shot, and then we crash to the title card, um, the assassination of Johnny Versace, and um. Then the show hops back in time. The first couple episodes hop around a little bit in time before the series takes its plan trip sort of more literally backwards in time. Yeah. So these first two episodes, you know, we'll be really conscious to talk about when in time we're talking about in terms of the plot. Uh, there are title cards, of course, that are helpful, but, um, it would be impossible if there weren't, honestly. Oh, yeah. Who would like Johnny Versace's hair is a little darker now. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we flash back to October 1990. Uh, it says San Francisco. The title card says San Francisco. This is when Andrew, uh, sort of uh, just a little bit after high school was living in Berkeley uh, with, with his friend Liz Cote, played by Annalie Ashford, and her husband Phil, played by uh, Nico Everswindle. And we see him waking them up uh, to say he met Versace, right? And so this is controversy number two. Did, and, and we talked about this in our very first episode of this podcast, did yeah. Andrew Cunanan 
meet Gianni Versace. Do you have like, do you have an opinion on, on this particular subject? Well, I first want to point out that we, before he says, I met Versace, we see him standing creepily over the husband, kind of groping himself. Uh, sort yeah. of establishing him as this I mean we've just seen him shoot somebody so we know he's a creep but like I don't know it's just kind of doubling down on that and I can't really decide if I like that bit of titillation or not but whatever mm. um, but yeah I don't you know again having not known really anything about the case uh, and then watching the episode before I really did any re- research I was like oh interesting I guess I guess they knew each other and then I read and I was like oh no that's very much in contention uh, I don't know I don't know how I feel about it, honestly. I feel like you could tell the story without inventing this thing, although in a sort of very, in a, in a blunt way, it establishes Cunanan's kind of values and his aspirational, you know, drive, um, you know, and also it's just another excuse to have a scene in a gay nightclub. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Well, so, you know, Maureen, we I talked about, this with Maureen in, in the last episode of this podcast, specifically this, and she has like nine or more different sources all swearing that Kunan and met Versace, including um, Liz Cote and her husband. Um, or at least that Andrew came home and bounced on their bed and said, I met Versace. Like this exact scene happened to them. But what I think the episode cleverly does upon rewatch is um, – really does potentially make this an invention of Andrews. Like this could mm-hmm. be just a story they're telling. Like when he talks to them further in a later scene in, in the kitchen, it's very clear that they don't really believe him, but they're like entertained by him anyway. They share these sort of Liz and her husband share these sort of silent glances of like, Oh, here's Andrews spinning another one of his yarns. And that's something that, you know, Maureen's book, reiterates over and over and over again is is that a lot of people in Andrew's life knew he was full of shit, but he was so entertaining that they just kept him around anyway. Right. So I think, you know, and and Maureen is careful to say that the date aspect, the whole like champagne on the stage of the San Francisco opera scene that happens here is not something that she has heard anywhere. So that is definitely a show invention. And so... And there's a dreamlike kind of quality about that bizarre scene where they're just right, like alone yeah. in the opera house and, and and Versace essentially tells him everything he wants to hear about how he's going to be somebody special and all this stuff. So that very much feels like a fantasy. Right, exactly. And so it's a very... I think it's a very clever blurring of fantasy and reality here of like there's a way in which the show, you know... it. You know, in a court of law, Tom Rob Smith, who wrote, you know, who adapted Maureen's book for this show, could say, well, this was meant to just be sort of in Andrew's head. But like, um, it's, it's, I don't know, I think it's really beautifully well done. And like, and really, as you say, part of the whole thematic thrust of the show is, you know, this, the second to last episode of the season is called Creator Destroyer. And this idea of like Versace as a creator and Andrew as a destroyer. And they have this um, whole conversation about, you know, what does Andrew do? He says like, oh, I'm a novelist. Like in Versace's like, oh, you are going to, you're going to be something great. And he does, of course, become something famous, but for this great act of destruction rather than creation which we see in comparison to versace's um dressing of the diva and talking about his whole philosophy of creation and 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 all of that i I just think it's whether or not it actually happened uh the way it's done i think is is kind of vital 
it's it's kind of vital to see these two characters on screen together, even if it is just in Andrew's head. Right. Yeah. Even if they're just kind of representing opposing ideologies or 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 mindsets right. or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're right. Um, and we've got this great stuff. This great, really uneasy relationship between Liz and Andrew, where there's obviously a lot of affection there that she has for him, but also flashes of unease because yeah. this is like this is seven years before he he would uh kill versace but he's just always been a charming engaging person who just oversteps you know consistently is, is the sense i think yeah. annalee ashford's performance is really really good yeah i mean she's great that. and everything but um I, I don't there's something about the way i don't know if it's chris's performance or the way that cunan is written that i'm not really getting the charm Maybe it's because I know what he does later, you know, yeah. but like this kind of affected thing and he's in the kitchen and he's, you know, saying, you know, everything's fabulous, but also saying this homophobic shit to kind of cover up, even though the couple knows clearly that he's gay. Um, right. You know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I wonder if maybe part of it is that we're 28 years now removed from uh, when this was and back then maybe the tolerance level for this kind of cliche affected foppish kind of gay character was was that was sort of more expected and maybe even desired as like a gay friend or whatever um but now after years of kind of the gay community sort of pushing against that narrative or at least trying to add some variation into the mix uh that sort of stereotype just doesn't sit as it's just not as charming as it maybe once was i don't know i i totally understand that um i I, I don't want to be – this is a role I play in a lot of podcasts. I don't want to be that person who's like, well in the book. But, uh, no, please. Well, but well in the book. Um, you know, Maureen North talks a lot about how that is an, a persona that Andrew adapt, adopted, particularly in high school, because it got him attention and he got positive responses to it. Like people were like, oh, you're so funny and entertaining. And I can totally see how it would grate on – anyone who is sort of tired of that that being the stereotype like the birdcage or whatever right. like that's that's all the only option for a gay character uh, at a certain time and and i um, certainly yeah. have known many gay guys who have done that some version of that you know mm-hmm. but i think the difference between them and someone uh, like Yunin, who you know clearly had a very very troubled psychology is that most people doing that kind of know that it's all bullshit you know it, that's part of the act. It's sort of a wink. It, it's it's performance. Whereas you kind of get the impression that Cunin actually believes it, and 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 would be kind of shocked to find out that like you know his friends are are sort of you know smirking behind his back. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so then we we flash back to July nineteen ninety seven, uh, the front steps of Versace's house. Oh wait! It, before oh, we yeah. do that, can we go back? Go there ahead. is a scene um, where we see Cunanan with, I guess, who's supposed to be a sort of boyfriend. Um, uh, right? Or is that is, it, is that not well, yet? In reality, I think he's just like a friend of his, uh, or or was a friend of his. But okay. Like a, yeah. But what a I, guy who's interested in him. But so so we you know that comes before the 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 scene at the opera with the with Versace and Cunanan. Uh, but similarly, this this kind of just two two hander establishes another sort of relationship thing in 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 the, sh- the broader show, which is, to my mind anyway, this. Uh, this really, really affecting depiction of 
queer life as this as you know especially back then when people were more closeted as really lonely and a lot of people just struggling to find connection and when they find it even if it's imperfect really struggling really hard to hold on to it and um I think that uh, you see that in different ways with Versace and his partner, uh, and with uh, characters that are we'll see in later episodes, um, and it it adds this really uh, this undercurrent of, of of really kind of of pathos that that feels really universal and and I think grounds the story in something almost relatable rather than it being this crazy sensationalistic story. So I think that scene is actually pretty crucial, even though it's it's small. No, you're right. And it, yeah, you're right. It, it does offer up like a, a non-serial killer gay character, which is nice to see. I mean, obviously Johnny Versace is like an Antonio in their whole world. Like that's, that's a positive depiction of, of, of gay life, but, um, to have, yeah. And, and this idea of, I think what he says is like, I can't get close to you because I don't know who you are. It's just very poignant. I mean, at least on that one side. Yeah. And he's asking him like, which lies am I supposed to believe? You know, like, like you keep saying you're this, you keep saying you're that. Like, I just want to know which one to kind of go with. Um, And he says, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I know that I'm not. um, Oh, what's the word? It's not exciting, but something like something along those lines. He's like, but I'm nice and I'm smart and I'm kind. And it's just, ugh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. But like at the same time, it's like, Oh, you know, good thing he got away from him. You know, I hope that guy is doing well if he exists. Right. Um, there's, I think he's a composite of like various okay. people, yeah. but yeah, uh, good for all of those people not getting, t- not being able to get too close to interconnect. Yeah. Um, so then we, okay, so we flash back forward to July 1997, front steps of the Versace house. Antonio hears the shot, comes running out. Um, Darren Crist, as Andrew Cunanan does this great thing where he just sort of like regards Versace coolly, like having mm-hmm. shot him, uh, and then turns around and his face sort of crumples. And uh, he's just, and then a few seconds after that, he's sort of on the run and has to be kind of menacing with a gun. So there's just like all these emotions that he has to run through so quickly. Um, quick factual point. Yes, the bullet also hit a dove, which sounds like a crazy thing that would happen. But the whole thing with like the dove getting shot right next to Versace, uh, did actually happen. Uh, and they did later perform an autopsy on the dove. So that's something that's that you wild. feel must be invented for the show, but is not. Wow. So, um, it's like something out of a John Woo movie. Exactly. It was so John Woo. I was expecting yeah. some face offness there. Um, and, and, you know, and here we, here we get to another, uh, aspect of the show that's been disputed. We see, uh, Ricky Martin as Antonio D'Amico sort of cradling Johnny's body covered in blood and, and being very upset. And the real Antonio saw some like photographs from the set of that exact scene and, and objected to it. He's just like, that, that just didn't happen. Like I was pulled away. This never happened. And, um, Ricky Martin since reached out to Antonio was like, please don't judge us based on these photos. Please watch the show. Uh, he said, uh, Ricky Martin said at the television critics association press tour last summer that he sort of felt like he had, gotten to a slightly better place with Antonio, but I think, I believe Antonio has said that he will not be watching the show, which I can't really blame him for that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I mean, regardless of like, like quality or anything and like, no, 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 no. But this is another, I mean, this is uh, another bit of poetic license, but one that I don't mind because then Ricky Martin as Antonio D'Amico spends the rest of the episode covered in Johnny's blood. It's very it's, Jackie O. Yeah, it's, or it's Jackie uh, Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. It's very Jackie. You can't 
it's an irresistible image, I think. So, you know, I don't, I don't really blame them for going with that. But, um, we see Andrew on the run. We see a man. We see a lot of the beginning of the media circus, which is something we're not quite familiar. We are quite familiar with from uh, watching the people versus OJ Simpson, right? We see a bystander taking a Polaroid, something that actually happened. He later sold it, you know, like yeah. this vulturism that just begins immediately around this death. So, um, and then we come to the, you know, the bumbling law enforcement, which is another, you know, as Maureen pointed out, uh, the subtitle of her book is The Biggest Failed Manhunt mm-hmm. in U.S. History. So a lot of theme of both this show and her book is the way in which law enforcement really just missed a trick or 20 uh, in trying to pull this whole case together. And so we, we meet a couple of law enforcement, local law enforcement, and then soon thereafter, l- local FBI. Yeah. Uh, and and what the and in this scene where yeah. they're 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 not exactly interrogating, just sort of questioning Antonio. Yes. Uh, it's another bit of the show setting up a thesis statement about in, in this case about the law enforcement and and how they treated gay people and how in not taking them seriously in in in, in you know in any real way they you know hobbled themselves and in, in you know they weren't really able to perform their jobs because they weren't really seeing the situation for what it actually was because they went in with all these pre things you know loaded into their heads we haven't seen the finale yet but i don't think this is something the show covered but something maureen's book covered is that this one uh this one gay fbi agent like a former fbi agent uh who is homosexual like offered up his services to the fbi to be basically like a gay consultant yeah to be like you guys don't know what you're doing like you don't know anything about this culture you are fumbling around and you're making all the wrong moves and let me help you and they did actually use him as a consultant but um but yeah here we see um this uh, i mean somewhat well-meaning he's not painted detective scrimshaw played by will chase of smash fame um like he's not a jerk like he's not being a jerk necessarily but he is but he's not like a completely bigoted I mean, Sam Rockwellian cop or something like that. Do you know what I mean? He's like, <laughs> Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards, not Sam Rockwell <laughs> yes, as sorry, Sam Rockwell. As a human. Um, yeah. <laughs> Leslie Bibb, you monster. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, but I mean, I think it, it's more that it was just like, it was that was the tone of the day, right? Like that's, yeah. you know, how a lot of people who were otherwise decent just treated this. And granted, he is, you know, it it, it was a little outsized let's say you know he's in this huge mansion and you know like the life that life would be foreign for anybody really you know but still yeah i think for the most part what we're seeing is just like well that's you know he's a cop and in 1997 and that's how people you know that's how people were treated gay people were treated a lot of the time by uh, you know people who weren't you know outright bigots we're going to talk to uh ricky martin later in the episode but um this performance from him here like i didn't know what to expect from ricky martin the actor uh has he done much acting i don't think so and i i was just i was really floored by this i thought he was really fantastic especially in the scene but kind of throughout and um something that i didn't know until yeah i guess he's got he's i'm looking now he's got a few story uh credits to his name he appeared in glee and um, and in, uh, he was in the movie <laughs> Idle Hands, which I believe is the Devin Sawa horror movie. 
as, playing man in car park uncredited. Yeah. So oh, yeah, so he's a seasoned veteran. <laughs> so this is a big leap forward for our Ricky Martin. But he, um, something that I didn't know that I just found out recently is he is really, really good friends uh, with Edgar Ramirez. They're oh, interesting. They they were very close before this, and actually Edgar. Like Edgar got the role of Gianni Versace first, and he told Rick, Ricky Martin before he told anyone else because they are indeed that close. And uh, Ryan Murphy says that he didn't know this when he called Ricky in for like a conversation, and he like he told this story Ryan Murphy that like when he auditioned or he had a dinner with Ricky Martin where he want he just wanted to offer him the role of Antonio, uh, no audition required. <laughs> his life is his audition, I guess, and he said that. You know, when Ricky Martin told Edgar, they both were like, oh, my God, uh, am I going to be Antonio? Like, that's that was their initial thought. And then during the dinner that Ricky had with Ryan Murphy, Ryan Murphy swears that Ricky Martin was texting Edgar Ramirez under the table being like, oh, my God, he offered it to me. Oh, my God, I'm going to do it. So, um, you know, they took this very close you know, Ryan Murphy, I guess by accident, I, that's crazy, but by accident stumbled upon these two men who already have just a very close familial bond as friends. Um, and I think it really does that warmth and, uh, comfort with each other, I think really comes through. In other episodes, we don't see them together too much in this episode, obviously at all, but, uh, you know, something that, that, that Martin is really playing beautifully, I think. So, and then we have the, you know, Johnny's rushed off to the hospital. We see some stuff with a pawn shop owner played by um, Kathy Moriarty and all this sort of stuff. But before all of that, or in the midst of all of that, we get the arrival of Donatella and Santo Versace, played by Penelope Cruz and Giovanni uh, Cifiera. And uh, this, I mean... It's shot so beautifully. The camera's up under the plane door as it opens and like the, you know, the opera is dialed up to 11 and it's just like this, you know, if you had any any doubts about how you should feel about the arrival of Donatella Versace here, like the, the show is here to make it very clear. And uh, and that's that's throughout. I mean, she's just filmed so grandly, you know, yeah. there are a lot of different shots of her that just are very like, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's kind of it's a little silly, but I also love it. Yeah, I mean, but this is how Ryan Murphy shows at least American Horror Story often treat their blondes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this, she is one of many like blondes of of the of the Murphy verse. Um, but you know, so we have Donatella come into this interrogation scene, throw the police out of the house. You know, and and we have Antonio saying once again, uh, you know alluding to but not saying anything about Gianni's illness and he says they will find out Donatella she says what will they find out he says everything and then Donatella goes sort of like immediately into shutdown mode they have a Versace spokesperson come out and say like Versace did not know Cunanan like this is you know unrelated to anything and just trying to sort of circle the wagons around this this grand family uh, for reasons you know, we find out immediately thereafter that they were thinking of listing the business on the New York Stock Exchange. And that's sort of, which they decide not to do, but that was sort of, um, is presumed to be one of the reasons that the Versace's really closed down um, the inflow of information around this is they were worried about hurting their business. If it came out that Johnny was ill, if indeed he was ill, that would hurt the brand, all that sort of stuff. So, um that's that's a that's a thing that once again the episode alludes to but does not overtly state. Right. And yeah. So it's 
what are we i mean i you know i know we'll have her well no i shouldn't say that but um you know uh, penelope cruz is uh, an interesting bit of casting you know um mm-hmm. but i think she's also in some ways uh genius casting like and she is really i think she's really good on this um i i the accent i'm not good enough at accents even though i took many years of italian to really say one way or another how how right she gets that but i think she gets the bearing and the the presence of donatella versace who after this point became very much a celebrity in her own right um so it's just kind of i don't know i think i think it's um penelope cruz is at the right kind of spot in her career for this I, i think it's great yeah you know this is something that we saw with with people versus oj is is the um I think the very intelligent use of the star actor, you know what I mean? The use of a John Travolta, the use of a Cuba Gooding Jr., something like that. And so like when Penelope, like this is, this is a, ve- a very good cast, uh, you know, and as the show goes on, we'll, we'll see a lot of other faces of, of really great actors. But I think having the biggest star presence be Penelope Cruz, uh, really does do something. The whole, tenor of everything changes when she arrives on screen and and that is meant to reflect i assume what it's like to be in the presence of yeah and i think also importantly you know i guess there is some inherent camp to both donatella versace as a person and penelope cruz in a blonde wig or dyed blonde hair doing this accent in you know like there is that but i think also the, the surprising thing about her so far, her role on the show and then the performance is that she's actually part of the, it, she's one of the strongest sort of emotional cores of it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, you, and she's actually a real window or a, or, a, or a conduit for the audience into the, the sort of heart of, of, of the story and the tragedy of it. So um, that's a pleasant surprise. She's not just swanning around with her cigarettes, you know, saying ridiculous things. Um, she, she actually makes sense in it. Right, because I mean, Penelope Cruz is a huge star, but also just an incredible actress, yeah. and she's not phoning any of this in. Um, and you know, the so the last thing that happens in this episode is following up on the lead from uh, this pawn shop owner. The police bust down the door of a motel room, and are they? You know, have they found Andrew Cunanan? No, they have not. They have found a character named Ronnie played by Max Greenfield, which is based on a, on a real person. And we'll get a little bit more of him in the next episode. And then we cut to Andrew now and all looking very beautiful and put together. And this is, this is once again, like this feels like a flight of fancy to me, like Andrew being like sweaty in and in denim jeans for the last bits of his life makes more sense to me than Andrew looking like beautiful and polished, put together. But we like, he is an all yellow, sees the headlines with you know about what he's done and buys all the papers buys them all so yeah which you know of course is tying back to the beginning of the episode with right so before we we get to our interview with ricky martin i wanted to ask you richard just sort of generally what you thought of this first episode as an introduction to the series if you thought it was a really effective way to kick off the story you know with the assassination and go from there or, or what you thought of it well yeah i mean i was lucky enough to be able to you know scroll up and press play on episode number two and i was eager to do it you know i i um i 
like I said, I think in our introductory episode, I'm not always on the Ryan Murphy train. And I know this isn't exactly his show, but, you know, it is kind of his show, too. Uh, and um, because I think sometimes he can uh, go a little overboard with the camp and, and it becomes almost kind of cruel. But I think so far that I, I, the tone feels right. The performances feel right. Uh, Chris is a very complicated bit of work and it's going to get more complicated. So I think we should maybe assess him further down the road. But um but yeah, I don't know. And I also like little like random bits like Kathy Moriarty popping up as a pawn shop person and, you right. know, um, Me too. you know, but I also I, I think that what's what's uh, what this show has to set before it that the that OJ maybe didn't. There was so much in OJ that had to do specifically with that, whereas with Versace, it has to uh, um, it has to broaden its scope a little bit to kind of fill out nine episodes. And I think they're doing that smartly so far in the first episode. You know, we're, we're getting a broader emotional map maybe than I thought we would. And um, I, I appreciate that. And I think that hopefully if people stick with the show, uh, it might, I don't know, it, it, it might kind of enlighten people a bit on, on certain things, I think specifically pertaining to aspects of the gay experience. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about that with you. Um, we should note that this is the only episode of uh, the assassination of Johnny Versace that uh, Ryan Murphy directed versus he directed four episodes of people versus OJ. So like, you're right that it is a Ryan Murphy show, especially in this episode that's directed by him. Um, but I think it's almost less of a Ryan Murphy show than a lot of his other shows are. That yeah. sort of seems to be the American crime story way. So, um, and yeah, I, it does feel I agree with you. It does feel early to give a referendum on Darren Chris, especially like you and I have cheated and watched ahead. So we know like what else there is to come. There's just so much more. Um, but f- for this introduction, this I mean, it's kind of astonishing that Edgar Ramirez is uh, Johnny Versace is only alive before the credits in this episode, because I think he makes just such an instant uh, impact this uh idea of Gianni as sort of like this unofficial mayor of South Beach where he walked around and he said hi to everyone and he was like so lovely and gregarious and I, you just, I just think you immediately get that with like four lines of dialogue <laughs> and I, I so I love Edgar Ramirez in this role and I, I agree with everything we said about Penelope Cruz as well so and Ricky Martin so excited to see how this all goes let us go now to our interview with Ricky Martin We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious. And this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.
Joining us today is singing sensations and star of American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace, Ricky Martin. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I wanted to kick off by asking you about, I I was so blown away by your performance in this first episode, especially. Um, So much of what you do or have done in your career, be it at Vegas or Broadway or world tours, have been these sort of big, loud performances. But one of my favorite scenes in this episode is, is just this moment where you're staring sort of silently in the mirror at yourself. And I was wondering what the challenges, Uh. yeah, what the challenges were of of going so much uh, more interior and quieter for this for this show Ooh. than some of the things you've done in the past. It's, in, it's incredible because that scene wasn't even on the script. And uh, that day we spent, I would say, at least eight or nine hours shooting. Number one, the uh, when 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 my character actually finds the body of his no pretty much husband on the street. Yeah. After that, we, we went to a really, really deep investigation. Uh, I mean, we shot the scene where the FBI is, you know, pretty much investigating me and find, you know, trying to find out that I was not the killer. Right. And then it was, it was so emotional. You know, the whole day was so emotional. It was so draining that at the end of the day, I guess Ryan wanted to use and take advantage of that vulnerability and he goes, Rick, come on, let's go to the bathroom. I want you to stand in front of the mirror, wash your hands because you've been covered in blood for the last 10 hours and tell me and give me whatever you can in front of the mirror. And it was very simple. It was all one shot and I, I was just exhausted. I was draining. I was really sad. It took me a minute to disconnect. Yeah. from, you know, uh, the, the amount of emotions that I had to deal with uh, that day. But, um, it, I mean, it's not methodical, but it was. <laughs> I was living as Antonio D'Amico for, for at least two weeks while I was living in that house. And uh, we were living in this house. I'm talking about the villa, the Italian villa in, in Miami Beach, Johnny's house. And um, and it was really intense, but I'm 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 glad you enjoy that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Sorry, sorry, it came at a personal emotional cost to you, but it made for really no, good television. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. it's all it's all connected. It's all connected. I was I was exhausted because of how long and how emotional the scenes that I that I shot that day were. Well, you know, speaking of that, the the scene that comes before it, that interrogation scene, um, did. Did that kick up anything for you personally when when you're having to confront this, I don't know, ignorance about what it means to be in a loving, committed gay yeah. gay relationship? Were, were, was that challenging for you to perform? Well, you know, um, we're talking about the '90s, and uh, now 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 things are a bit more open and more flexible and more fluid when it comes to relationships. Uh, back in the day, the fact that you were open to bring someone into uh, your relationship uh, was something that was people weren't used to it. So obviously, the, the 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 character of the FBI agent is asking, "But I don't understand. Were you his boyfriend? Were you his husband? Were you his pimp? What were you?" So it's it it's uh, I understand the confusion of the character. Uh, but at the same time, I'm shedding some light to to love. I'm shedding some light to how how can you? It's been 15 years. My relationship, I'm talking as Antonio, with Jenny lasted 15 years. We protected each other. We loved each other. It was very intrusive. 
And then on top of that, after that scene, Penelope, as in Donatella, comes in and she, and then she, and then she beats me up even harder. Right. So it, it was a. Uh, it was very, very touchy. It was, I was, I was really confused. I wouldn't know uh, how to react in a situation like this. So it, it came across and I'm, I'm very pleased with my job. I'm very pleased because Ryan Murphy was very happy and apparently the critics as well. So it's, it's, I'm, I'm celebrating to be honest. Good, good. You deserve it. Um, I've loved, I've loved listening to you talk about how you had this pre-existing close relationship with Edgar Ramirez, who plays Johnny Versace. He's my brother. Yeah, exactly. And I think that really, you know, uh, viewers haven't seen all of the other episodes, but we know that the show goes back in time, so we will see more of of Johnny and Antonio together. And you guys just had yeah. this very easy chemistry together it's very close intimacy that it takes some tv couples like seasons to develop and you guys just have it immediately can you talk about what it was like working with edgar and and how that helped you develop that relationship on screen i think it's all about being vulnerable and available uh for the needs of your colleague and and vice versa and uh, we clicked we studied together we did a little bit of research together, uh, and I would share with him where I was and 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 what my you know preceding circumstances emotionally were and and vice versa. But we had a great time. I think you know it's it's like Edgar before. The most important thing is for for us to have a great time and for us to feel comfortable with each other, not afraid. I'm not here to judge you. I I know that you don't judge me. Let's just. Let's just let these emotions flow. And I'm going to tell you something. The same thing happened with Penelope. I've known Penelope for many years. Um, and, uh, and the fact that I was able to, you know, be in front of a camera was, was, was bliss. But because of the camaraderie, the, the, the com- level of communication, and, and when she was not or I was not comfortable with something, we would, we would ex- exchange ideas in order for, for, for this to make it a, a win-win situation, you know, not only for the show, but for us and actors. You did an amazing job, and and it's 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 been um, one day. Edgar told us, I think we 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 must have have done something good for us to be uh, doing a project like this because the not, not only the opportunity of exposure that we get, but also the 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 energy on set was always on point. You talked about research that you and Edgar did together. I I read the Maury North book, and there's a lot about obviously. So much about Andrew, something about the Versaces, but very little Antonio. So I'm wondering, sort of, outside of the script you got from Tom Rob Smith, like what research you did to discover Antonio as a character. I talked to Antonio personally. We found him. I found him, <laughs> and uh, yeah. And I said, Antonio, this is this is what I'm working on. He's like, Yeah, Ricky, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> And, and 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 he said the only problem that I have is that paparazzi shot that I saw with you wearing a green shirt, Ricky. I never wear green shirts. I think it was adorable. And then I explained to him, Antonio, we're not doing a photo of the events. Mm-hmm. We're just doing a painting, and with a painting you can add colors and get rid of colors. And I am so thankful that you that we are talking because at the end of the day, all I want to do is do justice to the love that you and Janny had. So in order for that to happen, I'm just going to ask you some really heavy questions. I'm sorry that I'm doing this. And I know that it must be, I mean, it must have been incredibly difficult for him to relive everything after 20 years. 
So, uh, but still, and, and, you know, he was very generous, very open. He, 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 he was specific about things that he lived with Johnny and, um, and, and their relationship and how he felt when all this happened and how he felt after all this happened. And, uh, and I brought everything to set with me. So everything that you see is based on the communication that I've had directly with Antonio D'Amico. I know that, you know, Antonio had some concerns. You had this conversation with him um, where it seemed like you sort of communicated exactly what you say, that this is all, all being done in the interest of honoring the legacy of Versace and Antonio and all of that. Knowing that and having heard all of you guys talk about that that's what you want to do, what does it feel like then when the Versace family is so vocally resistant to this even existing? At the same time, Donatella sent Penelope the day of the premiere an arrangement of flowers. Right. Huh? So, yeah. so it's, it's one of those things. We're going by a book. We're going by a book written by Maureen Orth, and, uh, and it's an investigational book. And, uh, and it's, it's very serious, very serious stuff uh, that, that actually happened because of really, really intense investigation and years of investigation that she went through. And, uh, but at the end of the day, this, this series doesn't talk bad about anyone. It, it's just we focus really on, on the psyche of the actual killer. And we are, we are not attacking, I don't want to use that term, but we are bringing some light into the fact that it's not how Jennifer Sashi died, it's why we allowed it to happen. Andrew Cunanan, Andrew Cunanan was uh, on the list of the FBI most wanted, and, and he was not hiding, and, 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 and no one found him. You know, it's, this is, it's, there's, there is homophobia in this. And at the end of the day, I mean, if you have a gay man killing gay men in the 90s, it was, it was one of those things that looked the other way. They're doing it for, <laughs> they're doing it for themselves. And, and that's actually why I said I definitely want to be part of this because this cannot, this can, this, this people need to know this. And, uh, and, and we need to stop the hate. That's pretty much it. One of the more interesting themes of the season that I think the the show explores is sort of the damage that the closet, being in the closet, uh, can do both on Kunanen and and all of the people around him. Um, I was wondering and Johnny, himself. and Johnny himself, and I was wondering, you know, given your own journey with your sexuality through the '90s and and then coming out and being, you know, by your own words, a just much happier person when that happened. I was wondering what it was like to dive back into this world of, of closeted 90s reaction Indeed. to homosexuality. Yeah. Well, just like me, Johnny suffered from a, a little bit of internalized homophobia and the people around him, just like me, people that really loved him, told him, you cannot do this. If you come out, this will be the end of your career. Imagine Jenny right. Versace, a fashion icon. Are you? I cannot believe. And the, the sad thing is that still today, there's a lot of people that are struggling with this. I went through it. It's the most uncomfortable and um, I would say probably saddest times of my life where I thought that my, my life, my emotions were evil because that's what they told me. You're not supposed to feel like this. But Luckily, Johnny, and we talk about this in the series, he was able to come out. He did an interview with Antonio D'Amico next to him. And, 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 and did anything happen to his life? No. I came out and did something happen to my career? No. So 
it's uh, it's also something that is very important that we that we touch in this series and yeah the 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 no one knows how easy it is to come out until you actually do it I know you lived in Miami. I know you never met Versace, but you lived in Miami sort of right around the time when he was having, you know, holding court there, having all these parties. What did seeing someone like that, an icon like Versace out in Miami, what did that mean to you during the time that you lived down there? You know, it's, uh, I, I didn't know he was out. I, di- I, I never met him. Mm-hmm. I was invited to this, to, to the house many, many times, but I had a, I had a George Armani campaign at the time. <laughs> so I, I, uh, a competition, you're not, you're, you can't go there. But, uh, anyways, um, obviously just like now, if someone that has, um, that has power comes out, he, you know, he or she will be talking on behalf or serving as an example for those men and women that are, that are struggling. I'm I'm not even talking about young men and women. I'm talking about men and women from all ages. And, and Harvey Milk said it, everybody, please let's normalize it. She needs to come out. And cause there is absolutely nothing wrong with love. And, and, uh, so, even though at that time it, di- it didn't do anything to me. On the contrary, I was so locked in a closet. But um, but e- eventually when I did it, the amount of love that I received on social media by people saying, thank you so much because of you, I understand myself better. Because of you, my father understands me. Because of you, my I understand my uncle who's a gay man. So it's, uh, it's, it's a domino effect proposed by, by love. One of my favorite things that I've heard you talk about in your interviews in the past has been your relationship with like ambition and fame. You started when you were what seven or eight, I think, and uh, you know you've 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 been in the spotlight ever since. And I was wondering, you've used the word addiction a couple times to describe sort of your passion for the work that you do. Andrew Cannon was obviously driven by a much darker ambition for the spotlight for notoriety. But is there any part of you at all that identifies or understands sort of what Darren Chris is doing with Andrew Cannon and this and this like seductive desire for attention? Uh, well, um, I cannot talk. I cannot talk for Darren. I cannot talk for much less for Andrew. Right. All I know is that all I know is that since I was a little boy, I was doing when I was five years old. I was doing plays in school, and then the first time that I did a uh, that I was in front of a camera, I was I think I was eight or nine, and I was doing TV commercials. And there was a, there was a, a little shot of adrenaline that uh, that kept me going. And then when I was twelve, that I was able to perform in front of a crowd, and you felt that energy coming from people in front of you telling you you're doing a good job. I said, Oh my God, this is it. I'm hooked. I've found myself. This is, <laughs> this is what I need. And, um, I don't know if this is answering your question, but, but it is, it is, it is very powerful. I'm, I'm very lucky that I found my path at such a young age. And, um, and I hope I can keep doing this until the day I die. I know that Darren went back to shoot a little bit more after the premiere you guys had uh, last Monday. Were you done shooting or did you go? Oh, you did too. Okay. So, yeah. So my question is, you know, 
getting to go to the premiere, seeing everyone sort of react so positively to the premiere and your performance in the premiere, does that change at all when you go back then to shoot the finale? Does that change, I don't know, your confidence level in performing or anything about how you approach the work having seen this early positive feedback? It is. It does. It does. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how tough you try to be. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, you do this and you love it when people come and, you know, and they tell you the, the media, the, the, the fans through social media, they, they tell you, you, you did a good job. Yes. Of course. When you walk on set after you hear people saying that you did a good job, for sure. You, you feel pumped and you feel, um, uh, inspired, mod- motivated, but the truth is that I have been studying the scenes that I had to shoot uh, after the premiere with Penelope for months. And uh, regardless of what people thought, I was just starving for those scenes because they were incredibly important. There were scenes that are part of uh, the final episode, and uh, and and they're life. These scenes were life changing. I, I really hope you enjoy them. Now that you've done this, gotten a taste for what it's like to do uh, this kind of project with Ryan, um, what would you like to do next acting-wise? This is exactly what I wished for a few years ago. And look at this opportunity that came to me. So I'm just going to leave it like that. Um, Obviously, I just want to push buttons. I I just, I really want to, I need to push buttons and I need to, be part of a of a really heavy story. Am I describing Versace right now? <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's uh, it's. Uh, but this is the kind of this is the kind of project that I want to be part of for sure. I mean, serious stuff and and um, I don't know. Maybe go back in time and portray specific specific uh, people that impacted society. I'm, I'm looking for lots of, I'm reading lots of books. I'm looking for something that maybe I can not only act, but I can also produce it and, and be part of the whole beginning or even uh, script writing. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to see what that is. And I can't wait to see the finale. And thank mm. you again so much for your time. Ed. <laughs> thank you. All, right, bye. All the best. This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth produced by Dave Gonzalez. Thank you so much for joining us for this premiere. Look at the premiere. We're so excited to go on this journey with you. Until next time, Richard, where can people find your work? On VanityFair.com and at, on Twitter at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And I'm Jonah Robinson. You can find me also on VanityFair.com where we have, will have wall-to-wall Versace coverage. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. Feel free to tweet at us if you have questions about the show that you want answered on the podcast. We will do our best. Uh, and until then, we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, 
premiering on Hulu on May 9th. <laughs> 